This is us. We're in the heart of a series of messages on the values that we have as a church. And these values were brought together by the leadership of our church a number of years ago and have been refreshed at different points as we considered what the Word of God had to say about who we are, what God would have us be about, and they were lifted directly from Scripture. And so we're just walking through those this summer so that we're all on the same page as we head together to the fall here in just a few weeks' time. And we've looked at prayer, and these are not in any particular order. We've looked at prayer, we've looked at discipleship, we've looked at community, we've looked at worship, we've looked at missions, we're going to look at giving, and the one we're going to look at today is the Word, the Bible, the book, people of the book. So in addition to Psalm 19, I'd like to read to you from God's Word, from 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn, look on your device or look in your hard copy. If you don't have a Bible, there's ones at the back that you can borrow. Or if you don't have one and you'd really like one, we'll give you one. Just take it. 2 Timothy, which is about 60% of the way through the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the second letter that Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. And as I read this, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. How from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, all of the scripture points to the big meta story, the big narrative, the big idea that God has that he is moving us all to, to the central point in all of human history. When Jesus Christ came, took on flesh, went to the cross, died on our behalf, and rose from the dead. All of the Older Testament points to that. All of the New Testament reminds us, and all of history now points back to this transforming event in the history of all mankind. Revealed in Scripture. All scripture is God-breathed. It's the same Hebrew word that's used, it's the Greek word in the New Testament, but it's the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 when God created all that there is. The creative breath of God. When he created the universe. In the same way, the creative breath of God created scripture. All scripture is God-breathed. And listen to what it's useful for. This is so inviting. In a world that's flailing around going, what should I do with my life? And where is, is there any truth? Where is truth? Everybody claims to have truth, which is of course impossible when you have all these competing truths. It's totally illogical. Listen to how inviting this is. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's not a thing that you encounter in life that this book does not address in some way, either directly or indirectly. Very inviting. You ever wonder why 
there's no Moabites or Amalekites around anymore? You've probably noticed that there's very few Philistines living just down the street in your cul-de-sac. Why do you think it is that the nations and tribes that surrounded the nation of Israel as the scriptures were being formed in those thousands of year, a thousand years or so when the Bible was being written over that period of time by 40 plus authors, why is it that we don't really refer to those surrounding nations anymore? Of course, their descendants still remain, but they're scattered, they're amalgamated into all kinds of different ethnic groups and things of that nature. Egypt and Greece and a few other huge civilizations are still around, but any of them that were basically the size of Israel are largely gone. Why is that? Why did Israel survive? Thomas Cahill in his book, The Gift of the Jews, writes, how did a tribe of desert nomads change the way the world thought and felt. Why is it the other groups basically no longer exist? Well, for Israel, it wasn't because of power. They were a very small nation. If you know the history of Israel at all, you know that for most of their history, they've sort of been under the thumb of powerful nations. It, it could even be argued that that's the case today. It wasn't wealth. At the time that the Bible was being, being written, they had very little wealth. And even in today's world, when there's really only about 13 million Jews in the world, their economic clout, I would suggest, is above the number of people. They're, they sort of are fighting above their weight, but still they're not that significant a player in the world scheme. It wasn't size, they were very small. Israel was small enough that countries like Rome and Egypt and Greece hardly ever mentioned them in their historical records. So why are they still existing? Why is it that they have changed the way the world thinks and feels? Well, of course, primarily, it would be because of their, be, be because of their association with God. But at the same time, it was because Israel had a book. And they called it the Tanakh, which is three letters in the Hebrew and an acronym. T is for the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. N is the Hebrew word for the prophets. And K is the word for the writings. They had a book that was unlike any other book in all the world. And the truths and ideas and contained in that book have never been, you know, they've been sort of imitated, some of them at least, in some places, but they stand unique and alone. For example, at that time, as the, as the book was being written, there's all these nations with all their little tribal gods, numerous tribal gods all around them. The book said, no, 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 there isn't a bunch of little gods. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, it says in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God is one. And that this God is holy and just. And then something that the little tribal gods didn't ever talk about, loving. A holy, just, loving God that created everything that there is and has provided redemption. First talked about in Genesis chapter 3. This book, unlike all the mythologies and religious books around, is not just a cycle of endless repetition. 
It has a grand story. It has a meta-narrative. It, it works together. As I said earlier, it points to the coming, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. It talks about the fact that one day there will be a grand climax. This book says that God created human beings in his image. And so human beings have an indefinable splendor about them because we're created in the image of the God of the Bible. We are told in this book that we are held accountable by this holy God. And many people in our world choke on this idea. And this is why they come up with these elaborate theories, and I use the word theories, as to why there can't be a God. And I think at the heart of why they come up with these elaborate ideas is because they don't want to be accountable to anyone but themselves. And they think of themselves as their own God. And this was the first, at the heart of the first sin. When Adam and Eve said, I don't want to be accountable to holy God. I want to go my own way and do my own thing. And the book says we carry an indescribable accountability. The book changed the way the world thinks and feels. You don't even have to believe in God to know that that's historically true. It so defined the nation of Israel that they called themselves the people of the book. At UDAC, one of our key values is that we want to be known as people of the book. People of the book. Because it specifically and in a special way reveals God's plan for us. Other people are known for their power, they're known for their economies, for their artistic ability, whatever the case may be. Israel was a people of the book. We want to be known as people of the book. In the nation of Israel, when this book was in their hands and being written, a parent's greatest responsibility, bar none, was having their children learn the book. That's a very interesting idea. How does that play out in your home? Where is that in the priorities of how you invest your time, your energy, your resources, your money, all of those things? The greatest responsibility of a Hebrew parent was that their child would learn the book and live in light of the book. What about grandpas and grandmas here, aunts and uncles? What role do you play in making sure that that little one hears the story of God? The Israelites would show their reverence for the book in many ways. The book didn't have a cover like, like you know, the 66 books of, of the scripture that have been bound together nice and neat like this. They would come on scrolls, and you've seen these. You see a picture of one of the scrolls. Uh, behind me. Many of them are in a lot rougher shape nowadays. There's thousands and thousands, I think it's close to 15,000 full or partial fragments of scrolls. They were kept in special jars to protect them. You're seeing a picture of that now. 
on the screen behind me, um, jars that were like this that were specially formed to protect the scrolls. The scrolls were the most prized possession, bar none, in an entire community. All of the community would pool their resources to buy themselves a set of scrolls because these things were laboriously hand-copied with all kinds. There's a page of checks and balances they would go through to make sure they were thoroughly accurate, as accurate as humanly possible as they were copied. Before there were kings in Israel, Moses was talking to the people, and he said, listen, if you're going to have a king someday, here's what the king needs to do. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 to 20. He says, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law speaking about the scriptures, taken from that of the priests who are the Levites, the whole tribe of the nation of Israel were priests in charge of teaching and implementing the scriptures, among other things, but that was a primary duty. It is to be with him. And so in other words, everywhere he goes, he's to take his personal scrolls with him. He is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and Follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. The king needs to have the book with him wherever he goes. He's to interact with it every day. Read it every day of his life. Let me just say to you, are you a leader here today? There's a boatload of books that are written on leadership. Many great books read, written on leadership. If you want to be a better leader, read the book. Even in those three verses, great truths. Can't think of yourself better that, that, than those that you serve with. You want to be a great leader, read and implement the book. They love the book so much that Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived after the time of Christ, wrote about the book. Time and again, we have given practical proof of our reverence for our own scriptures. It is an instinct with every Jew from the day of their birth to regard them as the decrees of God, to abide by them and, if need be, cheerfully die for them. Time and again, the sight has been witnessed of prisoner enduring torture and death rather than utter a single word against them. Paul, writing to the church at Rome in chapter 3 of Romans, says, What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Much in every way, Paul writes. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. This is a standalone book. Jesus loved the book. We are told that he said, I've not come to do away with the 39 books of the Older Testament. I've come to fulfill them, right down to the smallest letters of the Hebrew grammar, uh, the smallest elements of the Hebrew grammar, to the jot and the tittle. Right down. I'm, I'm not going to push them aside in any way. I'm here to be the fulfillment of them. 
of the hundreds of prophecies that talk very specifically about my life. I will fulfill these prophecies. Jesus loved the book. But not only was he fully God, the scripture says he's fully man, and so he had to learn the book just like we do. The first time we read about him um, as a young boy at the age of 12, he's at the temple, and he's talking with and he's interacting with um, the intellectual elites of that society, the top 1% of that society. And he's talking to them about the book. And the way he is teaching them is through asking questions. This is the primary way that rabbis taught. It, they didn't want you to just regurgitate information. They wanted you to ask insightful questions that showed you grasped the text, that you'd been touched by the text, and you knew how to implement that text. And he's astounding them with his capabilities. One of the first times we see him as an adult, he's led by the Spirit, we're told in Luke chapter 4, out into the wilderness. He's filled with the Spirit. He goes out into the wilderness, and there he is tempted by Satan three times. How does he respond? doesn't try to use some philosophical argument to get himself out of whatever is being done to him. He quotes the book because there's power in the words of God. And it sends Satan packing. Next we see him going into the synagogue that he grew up in, in Nazareth. And the, the synagogue in, in Nazareth would have looked like the, the picture you see on the screen behind me. This is an archaeologically accurate, the archaeologists say, a rendition of what the synagogue would have looked like in the town of Nazareth when Jesus grew up at that point in history. We'll see the second picture now. This is what it looks like on the inside. We'll see the second picture now, and we'll see what it looks like. And you see there again some jars where the scrolls were kept, and the men would be on one side and the women and, and children on the other. He goes into the synagogue in Nazareth. He picks up the scroll because Jesus went to church every week, it says. It was his custom, and he served in the church. So he picks up the scroll of the book of Isaiah, and he reads. Well, they didn't have little numbers like we have, 61. But he turns to the part of the scroll in Isaiah in chapter 61, which is a prophetic word about Messiah, and, and reads the word that he is now fulfilling last days of his life, as he is hanging on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he is quoting a prophetic fulfillment of Psalm 22. Jesus was a man of the book. He taught his disciples the book. So here, let me say something pretty strong. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you claim to have relationship with him, if you claim to be a biblical believer, that there's parts of the book where you're going, man, I'm just not so sure about that part. I don't like that part because it makes me uncomfortable, so I think I'll just cut that part out. Or I'm not so sure I agree with these parts. I don't think this really happened. You know, come on, the book of Jonah. I can't imagine how that really happened. You just need to understand something clearly. You're not on the same page as Jesus. You're not on the same page as Jesus. 
And if this is the case, let me ask you a couple questions. Have you really read it? Because <laughs> usually when I come across people that are going, oh, I'm not so sure about this part, normally they haven't really read it. They haven't studied it. Now, sometimes they have, but the normal thing is, is they haven't. So the Word of God makes these incredible claims about itself that it's without error, as it was given in the original autobiography. That's an incredible claim to make. So you should be able to study it and check it out, and you're going to find that there's truth in here, that it is without error. There's paradoxes. A paradox is an apparent contradiction, even though it's not literally a contradiction. But when you first read it, it goes, well, that doesn't seem to match up. But when you study it, there's a credit. If you go in saying, I'm going to assume the best about God, you're going to see that there is a logic and a rational thing that you can see in these scriptures. This is why the book claims to be inerrant. It claims to be without error. Quite a claim to make. Kind of like the claim of Jesus rising from the dead. That is also a standalone event in history. If he can rise from the dead, don't you think he can give us a book that is without error? When the community of the church in the New Testament, in the Newer Testament, was first formed, Jesus has resurrected from the dead. 40 days goes by, he ascends. Another 10 days goes by, and on the day of Pentecost, the church, the New Testament church, launches. One of the first things we're told about this community is that they devoted themselves, in Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the book. Now we come to our day, and it's kind of strange because the book has never been more accessible in all of history. You know how many languages the book has been translated into? Last time I checked, Wycliffe estimated it at 2,656 languages in the world. Some of the greatest heroes this world has ever known are people that most of us have never heard of, people who left everything familiar and comfortable and they went to a foreign place. They got to know the culture. They learned the language. They studied the tribes. When they'd learned those languages, then they transliterated or transformed the scriptures, translated the book so that those local people could read the book in their own language. And it still goes on today. There's never been a book like this one. It's the greatest seller in the history of the world. You know, they would put out bestseller list. You know what would be number one? If they were being very accurate, number one every week without, without hesitation would be the Bible by a long, long margin, great margin. U version, something that is now 10 years old, was the brainchild of a, an American gentleman, and his dream was to put the Bible in the hands of every human being on the planet. There's now been 410 million plus downloads of version, And I can't remember, I think it's 1,500 different tra uh, translations. Or so, um, I better not say that. Retract that last statement. 410 million uh, downloads of version uh, available in the hands of people. 
most homes or many homes often will have a copy of the Bible. It's on a shelf somewhere. It's all dusty. You know, it's been given as a gift or something like that. Because the problem is, even though a lot of people have access to a Bible, they don't actually read the Bible. And this is a big problem. Remember what we read in 2 Timothy? Let me read it to you again. We saw that in Psalm 19 as well earlier, but it says, uh, it, it, it talks to you about how to be made wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's this creative, God-breathed gift to us and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For every good work. Kind of tough to do if we never read it came across some statistics from the United States by Gallup. I'm going to assume that Canada is worse than the United States because we're more pagan than them, although they're rapidly catching up. Less than half of the Americans could name the first book of the Bible. 80% of Americans believe in the Ten Commandments, but most can't even name four of them. 80% of the people think the phrase God helps those who help themselves comes from the scripture. It was actually Ben Franklin that said that. 12% of them thought Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. In Acts, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let me get real practical for a minute with you. I could give you a few of these little acrostics, but if you use and implement one of these little, simple little acrostics as you're reading the Bible, um, it'll help, I think. It just helps you to, to sort of systematically and, and, and thoughtfully move through. So let me give you one. Um, this one is uh, the word soap, and it comes from a guy by the name of Wayne Cordero. When you come to the book, and I hope you come to the book um, and spend time in the book regularly, ideally every day, but at least regularly. And it, it's not about the amount of verses you read. You might read a very short amount. Uh, you might read a chapter. Uh, periodically, it's probably a great thing to sit down and say, I'm just going to read one of the Gospels. I've got some time. I'd really like to read the whole story of Jesus, just once in a while. This is a good thing to do. Or I'm going to read a book from cover to cover, like I'm going to read... Um, Philippians, the four chapters of Philippians, all from cover to cover, just once in a while. Good thing to do. It's not about the amount that you read, per se. So this little acrostic is just the word soap. Just bear it in mind as you're reading God's word. And the S obviously stands for scripture. Make a commitment to be devoted to saying, on a regular basis... I'm going to expose my mind. I'm going to immerse my mind. Psalm chapter 1 gives this idea of meditating, which is like chewing on and, and sucking all the juice and the marrow out of the scripture. Um, I'm going to discipline myself to read it regularly, hopefully daily. And like I said, there's lots of great books in the world, and I've had the privilege to read a few of them in my day. Not knocking books. Reading is a great thing to do. It broadens your mind. Let you see the world even if you don't go to a place. But not one of them is on the level of this book. Not one of them. God uses the truths in this book that point us to Christ to change people, to change the world. So commit yourself to read the scriptures on a regular basis. Make it part of the healthy habits in your life. 
O stands for observation. And so just as you're about to read it, just say, Lord, would you help speak to me and observe something that you would have for me personally? And see, there's always one interpretation of Scripture, but many applications because we're all different people, right? So, Lord, help me to understand it and then make it very applicable in my life. So let me just give you a quick example of how that works. So let's say you were reading Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Um, and, and you just were reading those verses, and it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So I start with this scripture, and I say, Lord, help me to understand this. Help me to observe what's going on here. What do you want me to see? And see that the, the scripture is saying the bride meaning you and I, each person in the world that knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, is to be washed through the word. And the reason you wash something is because it's dirty, and so the soap and the water move through the fibers and extract the dirty material. There's this image. And when we come to God, he wants to wash us through his word. So I bring myself my mind, my heart, I recognize if I'm humble enough to acknowledge the truth that my mind is cluttered with all kinds of garbage and false beliefs and attitudes and inappropriate behaviors and feelings and things like that. And the superficiality of today's self-help world would be, oh, just have a good thought and it'll be all okay. And maybe for a while, if you're a really strong person, by sheer willpower, you can kind of overrule your general disposition. But generally, these thought patterns are so deeply ingrained in our life. We don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to have a different attitude. It doesn't work long term. Our, the scripture says in Romans 12, our minds need to be renewed. They need to be washed. And God wants to go on a journey with us to do this. So we're just trying to, just trying to, how would you read this passage and, and, and move through it in a way that where you're not just reading it, but it's actually working in your heart in a transformative way. So A stands for application. I, I start with scripture. I pray, I say, Lord, help me, to, help me to see what you want me to see in this passage. Now help me to apply it. Make it personal in my life. Help me to observe what Paul is saying and now make it applicable because I understand that I need to be washed. And so I want to bring my thoughts to you, God. I want to seek to let my thoughts be filtered by Christ. So my thoughts over time become increasingly um, aligned with the mind of God. Imagine what it would be like. You're sitting across the table from that person that is just really, really difficult to be around. And you'd rather be any other place. But because Christ has been filtering your mind, and you've been on the journey with him as you're reading his word, you're sitting across from this person, and you're actually able to bless this person. Because it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, when, it, when you come across those that hate you, pray for them. Bless them with your mouth. And so you're going, Jesus is doing this in my life. You're sitting across from them, and you're actually able to bless them and love them, even though they're really a jerk. 
or you're challenged by something in that day, and instead of believing the lies that the evil one loves to feed to us, that I'm totally inadequate and I can't deal with this, instead of those things, my first thought is, you know what, I'm a child of the King of Kings. And I'm the one uh, who's in relationship with him, and Romans 8 tells me that nothing can be separated from his love. And I'm going to move forward under his direction with those truths ringing in my ears. Or imagine if you're a man here today and you look at a woman who's not your wife and you can look at her, like the scripture says, like she's your sister or your daughter. And you can look at her with purity. And this is because we've allowed our minds to be washed by the water of the word. John Ortberg says God's goal is not that you would get all the way through the scriptures. God's goal is that the scriptures would get all the way through you. Now, it's great to have the goal to read. You know, some people read through the Bible in a year. Awesome goal to have. Um, If you've read through the Bible a number of times in your life, good for you. But remember, more importantly than just reading the words and gaining some knowledge is to allow the word of God to massage you and, and influence you and change you. Okay, God, I'm in. Now help me by the power of your spirit to live this. Key is for prayer. I allow the reading, the observation, the application of scripture to inform my prayer life. Lord, you know I can't transform my thought patterns on my own. My default position is more self-centered. It's more anxiety-ridden. It's more petty. It's more greedy. Would you cleanse my mind? Would you help give me the mind of Christ? So that I can think thoughts like it says in Philippians chapter 4 that are noble and pure and good. Little tribe of desert nomads changed the way the world thinks and feels because they were people of the book. At UDAC, this is one of our values. Our goal is that the book will be infused in all that we do and we will reflect the mind of God as it's expressed in the book.